he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two disciples saying, go into the village in front of you where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has yet, ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. And those who were sent away and found it, just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus. And throwing their cloaks on, on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you even, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes, for the day shall come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. They will not leave one stone upon another one in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. This is the word of the Lord. A few chapters earlier, we would read that when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to Jerusalem, to go to Jerusalem. This is all the way back in Luke 9. So there was, there was a change that was going on in Luke's narrative that a point in Jesus' ministry, as the time came, Jesus now headed to Jerusalem. Everything was headed towards Jerusalem for a purpose. This was a turning point. In Luke 19, Jesus even reiterated to those around him that, listen, this is the reason that I came. For the Son of Man came to do what? Seek and save the lost. Jesus reminding him, saying, listen, I'm heading to Jerusalem. I'm coming. And this is my purpose. To seek and save the lost. That is why I'm here. This determined obedience guided all of Je that Jesus did, all of his actions as a whole. Even Galatians 1, Galatians 1, 3 through 5 says this. As Paul is giving a, a, his initial greeting to the church, he says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of our Father. Father and God, God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. The reality is, is that if Jesus was not obedient, if he was not resolute and determined in following through with his mission, the reality is none of us would ever be reconciled. 
you'd be hopeless. You'd be hopeless. We would never enjoy any of the grace that we have received and that we would continue to receive. And I love Jesus' absolute resolve, his resolve that opened the floodgates of heaven's grace to sinners like you and me. His resolve just opened up the heavens, and it was like a downpour of rain on us for grace because of his resolve. To be resolute is to be determined. It's to be pointed. It's to be earnest. And Jesus was resolute in his purpose to seek and save the lost. And when the time came, he set his face to Jerusalem. He was firm, unwavering, resolute. And today's gospel describes both a, a figurative and literal uh, move, downhill ride to Jerusalem. And we call it the triumphal entry. We call it Palm Sunday. But it doesn't really, if you look at this text, it doesn't look, if you really look at it, it doesn't look all that triumphal. Jesus does not ride on this big, huge, strong stallion. He sits on a borrowed colt. He doesn't have any huge army of followers counting a cadence as they march. He had a few disciples singing praises to God. They didn't carry banners or insignias demanding recognition. Instead, old clothes were thrown on a mountain path. It doesn't look like what we've come to expect when we hear the word triumph. In fact, there were no high fives. There was no chanting, we're number one. We're number one. There weren't even victory speeches. You read a bit further, you discover that Jesus is weeping. Triumphal entry and weeping. The reality is that even in this day, way back when, that there was another parade going on. In fact, I would even say there were probably three parades. There was Jesus and his disciples coming into town in this triumphal Palm Sunday. Palms are waving, cloaks are being thrown down. And then you have this, this other kind of crowd of grumbling, angry Pharisees saying, we rebuke your, rebuke your disciples, keep them quiet, keep them quiet. But on the other side of town, there was another entry coming in. This was a high, high, highly celebrated feast day for the Jewish people. And in a show of strength, the Romans were coming in on the opposite side of town with Pilate leading the way and a Roman army coming into town to maintain order. Pilate would have been coming in on a chariot or a horse, a large steed of some sort. They would have had all the Roman army with all their, their metal clanking as they're going, insignias going on. There was going to be a clash. And we see that clash happening on Good Friday. The values of this world, the purpose of this world, clash with God's sovereign plan of redemption. What is triumphal about today's gospel? The triumph for Jesus is not about winners and losers. 
but about fullness of life. To understand the triumph of this day, we must understand that triumph does not begin, even begin with a colt on the Mount of Olives. The triumphal entry even begins with Mary, the mother of Jesus. Think about that. It begins with Mary saying, let it be so. Let it be so. And with those words, she opens her womb, the world and all of humanity to God's entering human life and history in a physical, tangible, personal way. If we think that the triumphal entry is simply Jesus riding in on a colt from the Mount of Olives to Jerusalem, we'll surely miss the good news of this day. The triumph is bigger than this. It is happening in every place and every moment in our lives of Jesus coming in and desiring to be with us and announce peace. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king who comes. And then there's also, did you kind of hear this echo of Luke 2 in there? Luke 2 kind of has the angels are saying, glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace. And on earth, peace. And they, they repeat a Psalm 118 where they say, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. There's kind of this echoing of this original birth message and now Jesus coming in to complete all things. God's entry into human life and history is a triumphal entry. Jesus' life is the triumphal entry. Jesus' movement from Mary's womb to Bethlehem's manger is a triumphal entry. Every point where Jesus' life and ministry intersects with the reality of our lives becomes a point of a triumphal entry. The triumphal entry is Jesus bringing good news to the poor, healing the brokenhearted, giving sight to the blind, releasing the captives, and letting the oppressed go free. The triumphal entry is Jesus, including the outcast. Setting a place at the banquet for the unacceptable. Forgiving sinners. Loving enemies. Giving life to the dead. That is triumph. That is the triumphal entry. But the reality is that Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry, is an event of great insight as well as tremendous, great misunderstanding. The great insight is that Jesus really is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. That's the great insight, and that should bring us great joy, that Jesus is the king who is coming to to heal us, to save us, to relieve us from all of sin's domination. He is the Messiah, the son of David, the long-awaited ruler of Israel, the fulfillment of all of God's promises, All of God's promises. But the great misunderstanding was that he would enter into Jerusalem and by his mighty works take the throne and free Israel from Rome. It wasn't going to be that way at all. It wasn't going to be that way. He would take his throne, but it would come through voluntary suffering and death. And resurrection. Even the first sermon that Peter preached after the resurrection 
comes to an end with these words that this Jesus that God raised up so that he was exalted at the right hand of God. And the Apostle Paul says how he is now king. He must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. So Palm Sunday was a day of insight along with a day of great misunderstanding. And the insight was that he is coming to accomplish what he was coming to accomplish was to give joy. And the misunderstanding about this destruction and the murder of Jesus a few days later and the destruction of Jerusalem 40 years later was a misunderstanding. And Jesus saw it all coming. Saw it all coming. What I want to focus on this morning is Jesus' response to the blindness and the hostility that he was about to meet in Jerusalem. Indeed, he's kind of already met it here in this text. The crowds were crying out in verse 38, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But in the very next verse, it says, Some of the Pharisees in the crowds were saying, Shut your disciples up. Rebuke them. Tell them to be quiet. So Jesus knew exactly what was about to happen. The Pharisees were going to have the upper hand. The people would be fickle because they're already praising him in the streets. But soon they would be fickle and they would follow their their former leaders. And Jesus would be rejected and he would be crucified. And within a generation, the city would be obliterated. Look how Jesus says it in 43 and 44. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground and you and your children within you, they won't even leave one stone on another because you did not know the time of your visit. God visited them in the person of Jesus Christ. He came to his own, and they received him not. They did not know the time of their visitation. So they stumbled over the stumbling stone. The builders rejected the stone and even threw it away. And Jesus saw this sin and this rebellion and this blindness coming. He's, he's I'm scared. How blind are we? How blind are you? How blind am I? Am I missing it even today? That Jesus wants to have entry, full entry into my life. To rule and to reign. And I'm missing it. So I've got a certain blindness. The reality is that Jesus wept over this blindness and the imminent misery of Jerusalem. And how would you describe those tears? See, there were two crowds. One with joy and one with hope, and the other that would lead to destruction. There's two crowds. And how would you describe his tears over these people? I pray that this morning that this will have an effect on us. First, make us admire Christ. 
admire Christ and treasure him above all of it. And we would just fairest of all. And second, that seeing the beauty of his mercy, we would become merciful with him and like him and because of him and for his glory. So first, I want us to admire Christ's merciful Sovereignty and sovereign mercy. I want us to admire Christ together. The question is, what makes Jesus so admirable and so different among all other persons? What sets him apart as unique and worthy to be imitated and to follow and give our lives? What makes him matchless? What makes him above all of our peers? It's because the reality is, is that we all have people in our life that we love deeply. We've got spouse, we've got a child, we've got family, we've got friends, we've got co-workers that we just love and we want to imitate. We've got people that we put up on pillars, people that we might not even know, but we look and say, that man, that woman, that is who I desire to be like. And I want to give my life to that mission, to that person, to that organization. And the reality is, is that person, that, those people, anything like Jesus, is, are they par for course? The reality is that he unites in himself so many qualities, so many qualities that in other people are contrary to each other. He is sovereign. He rules over all. And he's merciful. Aren't they kind of like oxymorons? Sovereign over all. King of the universe, the creator of all, but yet merciful. It's not an either or, as a king who rules with a, a scepter and just ready to whack us down when we screw up. He's not that kind of a king because he is sovereign and merciful. We get to combine them into this perfect proportion of merciful sovereignty and sovereign mercy. We look to Jesus. No other religion, no other political contender can even come close. There is none like Jesus. So in this text, there are three pointers that point to his sovereignty. First in verse 37. And as he was drawing near, already on his way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. You see, Jesus had made a name for himself in the, that brief 33 years and three years of ministry. He had made a name for himself as a worker of miracles. And they remembered him. He had healed lepers with a touch. Would that not alter your worldview? Jesus you know this man, his, his fingers are starting to fall off, There's, his flesh is just a stinking mess, and Jesus comes and touches, and what happens? Flesh like a baby, new, beautiful, 
fresh life. On top of it, he has made the blind see, the deaf hear, the lame walk, and he commanded unclean spirits to depart, and they, they obeyed him. He walked on water. He stilled storms. He turned water into amazing Merlot. On top of that, he turned fish and loaves into a meal for thousands. And so he entered Jerusalem knowing that nothing could stop him. Nothing. He could just speak and Pilate on the other end of the, the city would perish. The whole Roman Empire would be done if Jesus would just say it. The Romans would be scattered. He was sovereign. But secondly, we see in verse 38 where it says, the people are saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Jesus was king. Jesus was king. And not just any king. Not just any king that sits on the throne. Not any president who is elected by the people. He was king. The one sent and appointed by God himself. They knew how Isaiah even described him. When he said, of the increase of his government and of peace, there would be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So the the universe, never-ending kingdom backed by God's zeal was upon Jesus. And here's the king of the universe. The king of the universe who rules over nations, rules over galaxies, rules over my heart, rules over your heart, for whom America, Iran, and Iraq are just grains of sand and vapor in God's eyes. A blip on the screen. He is the king. And he has come. The third thing that we can see is in verse 40, when the Pharisees tell him to make his people stop blessing him as king. And Jesus answered, listen, I tell you this, if these were silent, if these crowds were silent, the very stones would cry out. I love that. Where Jesus says, listen, uh, listen. if, if you're going to force my hand on this and you're going to tell my disciples to be quiet, this is what I'm going to do. And this will blow you away. Try me. The stones over here, some of you are probably clutching them in your hand because you'd love to stone me right here. You've tried before, I know. But those very stones around you will cry out in prayer. Does that not tell you of God's sovereignty? Of his sovereignty? And why did he say that? Because he, how do I explain? Jesus will be praised no matter what. Whether his disciples praise or not, the reality is Jesus will get the praise that he deserves and he will do it even through rocks. Even these rocks will cry out. 
The whole design of the universe is that Jesus Christ would be praised. That's the whole design of the universe. And therefore, if people won't do it, he'll see to it that rocks will do it. In other words, he is sovereign. He will get what he deserves. If we refuse to praise him, the rocks will get the joy of praising God. He can make praise come from rocks. That is the Jesus that I love. He can make rocks praise. And the reality is, he could do the same with rock-hard He could make a stone cry out in praise with joy. The reality is that same Savior who is sovereign over all can make rock-hard hearts praise Him. And this morning is just a little taste of that, wasn't it? As we are in worship, I'll tell you, I, I'm up here so I can't see what's going on back there. I don't know where you were, but I'm going to tell you, my heart has tendency over the week, over a day, to become calcified, <coughs> to become hardened. And in a moment of worship, of experiencing the Spirit's movement, he takes a rock-hard heart and turns it into a heart of praise. He is sovereign even over my heart. Sadly, Jesus even realizes that these people, these people will be fickle. And ultimately, even Jerusalem is going to fall. He knows that in, in Luke 18, a chapter before, he, he, he takes the 12 beside and says, hey, listen, this is what's going to happen. See, we're going up to Jerusalem. And everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished in Jerusalem. That's just the reality, boys. When we go to Jerusalem, everything that the prophets have written about the Messiah is going to take place, and you're going to see it. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and they will, and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit on, and after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day, he will rise. Jesus said, listen, that's what's going to happen when I come into to Jerusalem. And I am going to fulfill all of that. I'm even sovereign over prophecy. The betrayal, the mockery, the shame, the spitting, the flogging, the murder, and so much more was all planned by God. And Jesus obediently, resolutely went into Jerusalem to accomplish the purpose that he was sent out to seek and save the law. But his heart even broke because he knew, he knew that these people would reject him. And that Jerusalem would even be destroyed. And God was handing them over to hardness. It was his judgment on them. We see this even in, in Romans 9. The mercy of God is a sovereign kind of mercy. Romans 9.15, the author says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. 
God is sovereign over who he has mercy and sovereign over who he has compassion. This, and I want you to hear this, this sovereign Christ weeps over hard-hearted, perishing Jerusalem as they fulfilled his plan. Jesus is serene in his sorrow and sorrowful in his sovereignty. Sovereign power is even more admirable, more beautiful. It's this, this amazing harmony of things that, that seem to be intention that make him all the more beautiful and glorious. We admire power all the more when it's a merciful power, right? We hate it when, when people, uh, an employer will come in and say, you do this, you do that, you do this. You screwed up, you're fired, you're out, you're in, you're out. And that's that kind of power we go, whoa, that repulses my heart. But we look at Jesus and he has a merciful power. And we admire mercy more when it's a, a mighty mercy, a powerful mercy mercy. And I pray that we will see his mercy and admire his mercy and that you, I pray that you will become more like him in his mercy. And I'm going to show you at least three ways that we can see that Jesus was merciful. One, here's the first one. Jesus' mercy is tenderly moved. Jesus' mercy is tenderly moved. He feels the sorrow of the situation. Jesus feels it. I think that we, we often, when we think of Jesus, we have kind of this abstract, historical view of Jesus who was some 2,000 years ago. The reality is some 2,000 years ago and still today he is tenderly moved. This doesn't mean that his plan was wrecked by humanity when they, they desired to be autonomous and apart from it. It means that Jesus is more emotionally complex than we can ever imagine. He feels the sorrow of a situation. No doubt that there was a deep inner peace that God is in control and that God's wise purposes will come to pass. Jesus was resolute saying, oh, listen, no matter what happens, God's purpose is going to be accomplished. And he had security in that, as should we, that no matter what happens in this life, whether it be life, death, persecution, stoning, rights being taken away, listen, we can have confidence that God's will and purpose will be accomplished, but that doesn't mean that you tend to cry. And that's why. Because Jesus, he was... He knew God's purposes would be accomplished. He was moved, tenderly moved. I pray first for myself and then for you guys. I pray that God will give us peace. And some of you are going, 
I don't need another tear. I really don't want to cry. But I pray that God gives us peace. There is so much pain in the world today. And we are numb to the pain. There's so much suffering far from you and near to you. I pray that God would help you be tenderly moved. To that neighbor next door who does not know Jesus Christ and his love, that you are moved to tears for that person. As you pray for them, as you think about them, I pray that you would be moved. As you look at the conflict in the Middle East or the, 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 the bitter battle over the LGTB homosexuality stuff in the United States and all that's even going on in, in Illinois, that your heart is moved to tears, that you're, you're broken, that you are tenderly moved. And I pray that when you stand before God, the judge, and he asks you, how did you feel about suffering around you. I, I pray that you don't, you don't say, oh, I, I saw through to how uh, a lot of people brought their suffering upon themselves by sin and foolishness and junk. You know, I think that if you, you just say, man, they had it coming, I think the Lord would say, I didn't ask you what you saw through everything. I asked you how you felt. Jesus felt enough compassion for Jerusalem that he wept. If you haven't shed any tears for somebody else's losses but your own, probably means that you're pretty wrapped up in your own. Let me say that again. If you haven't shed any tears for someone else's loss other than your own, it probably means you're pretty wrapped up in yourself. How's that kind of for a kick in the gut, you know? So we need to repent for our, our hardness hard hearts and ask God to give us a heart that is tenderly moved. Second thing of seeing Jesus' mercy is this. Jesus' mercy was self-denying. Not ultimately. There was great reward in the long run for Jesus, but in the short run. This text is part of the story of Jesus. Jesus is moving intentionally towards suffering and death. Jesus is entering Jerusalem to die. We are going to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man is going to be delivered up, and they're going to kill me. That, that is the meaning of self-denial. And this is the way that we follow Jesus. When we see a need, when we see a need, for Jesus is seeing the sin in the world and broken bodies and the misery of hell, and we move with Jesus. 
whatever it costs for the need. There was intentionality in his movement, intentionality in his mercy that he was going to pour out on the cross of Calvary. He intentionally moved toward pain for our sake so that we could have life. And I want you to think about your neighborhoods. I want you to think about your closest friends. Do you move with intentionality towards them and willing to give up whatever it costs so that they may have life? Do you do that? Or are you caught up in your own world of self-preservation? Listen, Jesus giving himself up and dying on the cross, hey, that is admirable. Please do not ever ask me to do that. But the same Jesus says, if you're going to follow after me, take up your cross. And you follow me. Take up your cross and follow after me. We need to move with Jesus intentionally. We need to deny ourselves the comforts and security and the ease of avoiding other people's pain. We need to embrace it. Much like Jesus, what did he do? On the cross, he embraced our pain. He took on sin. Jesus' tears were not just the tender moving of his emotions. They were the tears of a man toward a need. Monsieur Day Church, we are to be people, not just saying, oh man, really stink that there's people who don't know Jesus out there. And they don't even have clean water. They don't have the basic, basic needs of life. And man, it stinks that my neighbor next door doesn't know Jesus. We need to be tenderly moved with intentionality towards them. Filled with compassion. Filled with love for them. Weeping at their condition. And I pray that that will move us to rich and amazing experiences as we move with Jesus. So I want you to pop right in your head right now. Who is being brought to mind? But the Spirit is saying, you know who I'm talking about. This person or these people. Who is it? And maybe some of you need to write that down right now. Or lean over to somebody next to you and say, Joe Smith. <coughs> so that there's accountability. That, hey, I believe God is placing on my heart that we need to move with intentional compassion towards this person. Write that name down. Write those people down. Write an organization down. Jesus' third is that Jesus' mercy intends to help. This is the last way that I see Jesus being merciful. First, he, he was tenderly moved, then he was self-denying and moved towards that need. Now, he intends to help. Mercy is helpful. It's helpful. It doesn't just feel, though it does feel, 
It doesn't just deny itself, though it does deny itself. It actually does things. It actually, mercy does things to help people. Jesus was dying in our place that we might be forgiven and have eternal life. That is the good news. Jesus came, he lived the righteous life that we could never live on our own. Impossible. He came, he lived perfectly, fulfilled the law for us, took on the wrath of God by dying on the cross, died, was buried, and rose again. That is the good news. And do you see how that good news helps? When you give your life to to Jesus Christ and his work, when you submit your life to him, you are a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. You have new life. Jesus helped you in a way that you could never help yourself. Jesus came and helped you. Jesus was dying in our place that we might be forgiven and have eternal life in him. That's how he helped. So the question is, what will it be for you? How are you doing in your in ministries of mercy? We don't need just a ministry. The deacons have oversight of ministries of mercy. They have oversight of offerings that go out to help people who are in need. Yes, that is critical for the corporate life of the church. But how are you doing in your personal ministries of mercy? Are you responding? How are you and your roommate, your housemates, your family doing together in this ministry of mercy? What is tenderly moving you today? Anything? What is moving you? Is there movement toward pain or suffering or misery or loss or sadness that means that requires denying yourself in the short run, but yet in the long run, it is multiplying you? And what Help are you actually giving to those in need? We can't sit here every Sunday and hear a sermon and go home and check out. Come back on Sunday hear a sermon, sing some songs, give a little bit of cash here or there, go home and check out. It can't, it, I can't do that. I need to respond. The gospel is too extravagant and too rich and too powerful and too beautiful and too life-altering for me and for me to get into that kind of life. there's two prayers for us as a church that I have over the course of these next few weeks together. I 
pray that we would see and savor the beauty of Christ. <laughs> when even to, we hear the words, name above every other love Jesus' name what he has done I, I want to see and I want to savor him in all that I do and I want to experience joy I pray that you will see and savor in growing and exponential kind of way. I want you to taste and see that he really is good. I mean, really. I, I want you, some of you are just going, what is he talking about? I, I, when I say even the name of Jesus, I pray that some of you are going, oh, he said that name. And I experienced his mercy and I was able to be a minister of his mercy this week. And it was sweet, painful. It was complex. And there were tears, but there was also joy that I've been included. I've been grafted into this kingdom, these people, into the life of Christ. I am in Christ, and I am experiencing something rich and powerful and beautiful. That's what I want. But I also want that as we admire and worship him that we would be changed. So it's not just this objective okay, Jesus, got my stories down. But that as we admire what he has done and is doing in our lives that we would be changed by what we see. And we as a community and as individuals we would be changed and become more tenderly moved, more self-denying, and more need-meeting people. As a response to what Jesus has done. Is there any amens out there? So you know you have permission to use those words. That is my hope. That is my prayer. Admire, <laughs> savor Jesus. And that will tenderly move.